Half of the city was underwater. The ecology of the of the place is now in ruins. We looked back at the counteroffensive and we saw that yeah, it wasn't really moving very far. Prigozhin is basically a dude throwing a party that nobody showed up. There's one golden rule for me. Never expect the Russians to do anything to show real resistance. Finally, they're thinking about Ukraine as being part of the European community. Militarily, the pressure can be put back on Russia. Ukraine has to right now secure the funding for 2024 and make sure that Europe and the States are willing to support Ukraine for years. Hi everyone and welcome to This Week in Ukraine, a show where the newsroom of the Kiev Independent explains Ukraine's biggest events in just under 30 minutes. I'm your host, Anastasia Lapatina. Today is our last episode of 2023, so we're doing something a little different this time. I'm in the studio with two of my colleagues, the Deputy Chief Editor of Kiev Independent, Alexei Sorokin. Dasha, hi. Hello. And Francis Farrell, a reporter at the Kiev Independent. Good to be back. So the three of us are bringing you a roundup of the key events that happened in 2023, as well as our take on what's to look for in 2024. So guys, what would you say was the most important thing that happened this year, in your opinion? Well, I can name actually three things. I would say, obviously, the start of accession talks with the European Union. I would say probably the ICC summoning like an arrest warrant for Putin and Vova Bilova. And also probably the ousting of the now former defense minister Reznikov after several corruption scandals. And what about you, Francis? What do you think was the most important on the front line? Yeah, on the battlefield, it's been a, a very wild ride over 2023. The year has looked very, very different to 2022 when we had just just crazy, rapid, frantic, heroic events. And 2023 was obviously a lot tougher. We've talked about this in, in many ways. It started all the way back in, in Bakhmut. That's where I actually spent New Year with some soldiers outside Bakhmut. And I remember back in that time, you know, there were other, there were so many other things that were on the main radar. There was this, you know, Bakhmut meat grinder, if you could call it, you know, for the Russians, obviously for the Wagner mercenary group. We remember Prigozhin and how, how his fighters were attacking there complete human wave tactics, but it was also incredibly costly for the Ukrainians. There were, there were these questions of, should they stay in Bakhmut? Is this, is this kind of working in their favor? But at the time we were all waiting, you know, we were all expecting that, okay, this is where Ukraine grinds down the Russians, where the Russians run out of steam. And now everything was leading to obviously the counteroffensive. In the end, the winter campaign dragged all the way through into spring. So Russia was attacking not only through winter, but through spring. Bakhmut only fell at the end of May. And while that was happening, and this turned out to be key, of course, Russia dug these fortified lines of defense all along southern Ukraine. We saw it happen in real time through satellite images because they knew exactly that Ukraine was preparing for a counteroffensive and they wanted to do it in the South. And there was this period of anticipation. We were all waiting, knowing how high the stakes were, right? Because if, if it succeeded, this could be a straight path towards victory for Ukraine. And, and if it didn't really succeed, then, then we, we didn't know what would happen next. Maybe a stalemate, maybe Russia would attack again. And, you know, the counteroffensive itself, it was, it was kind of frantic at the start. We we're all focusing so, 
so closely on where it would be and what would happen at the start. But then just a few days after it started, suddenly one of the biggest dams in Ukraine is 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 blown up on right. the Dnipro River and, and Kherson is being flooded and everyone's rushing there. And I remember I was there, you know, doing a story about a flood and then being shelled at the same time. Uh, and then, you know, slowly, okay, we woke up from that. It was just one fever dream after another, I guess. And we looked back at the counteroffensive and we saw that, yeah, it wasn't really moving very far. You know, they, the, the Ukrainians were really struggling with these minefields, these defensive lines. They were struggling to coordinate combined arms operations at a large scale, which, which they needed to break through. And eventually, after taking a pause and, and waiting and trying to figure out how we can do this better, the, the Ukrainians started to move forward again around August if we're talking about the South, uh, taking this village of, of Robotina. But unfortunately, it didn't really go much further from there. There were other counteroffensive uh, counter kind of axes in other parts of the front line, but that Southern one was always the most important. And, and it kind of stopped there. I was there and, and it's, it's a crazy story because it was always gonna be so hard and you know everything had to go right for Ukraine. But not everything went right. But at the same time, the fact that they even managed to do that, I, I know some of the guys there was, was, for me, incredible. But yeah, it stopped there. And, and now we're in a new phase, of course. Uh, we've talked about this. Now Russia's on the attack and, and they seem to have had plenty of energy and resources to once again throw their, their men, their tanks at Avdivka this time and other parts of the front line in ways that almost seem similar to to what what we saw in Bakhmut. So in many ways, there's this kind of cyclical timeline, I guess, of the battlefield. Although, yeah, a lot has changed. And the main key thing is that you just can't do these quick, fast offensives on either side anymore. It's just this grinding positional battle, tree line by tree line, trench by trench, just like what Zaluzhny was talking about in his economist, economist piece, yeah. Francis, you mentioned Russians blowing up the Kahovka Dam in Kherson Oblast, which was, of course, a huge deal, but I feel like sometimes it is maybe overlooked a little bit because it's not a strictly military kind of, uh, you know, effort from the Russian side. And it's, I mean, when you have historic events happening every month, it's, it's, it's it, difficult to, to even to remember. Keep, to keep and, track of, yeah. And remember how, how insane... How big of a deal everything is, yeah. These things were, yeah. Yeah, as, as Francis said, every week, every month, we have something happening so major that when it happened, it was, it was the biggest event you could possibly imagine. Because going back to that, we remembered that Russia was kind of taunting, saying that it can... Ukraine is going to blow up the uh, nuclear power plant or there's Ukraine is going to blow up uh, the dam. So you kind of knew that this might happen, mm -hmm. but similar to probably the start of the full scale invasion, a lot of people knew that this was going to happen, but a lot of people also didn't believe that it can get so evil, uh, so, so, evil so, so messy, right? And when it happened, unfortunately, we saw that many people weren't prepared, right? So 
Kherson is actually a pretty big city. It's a regional capital. It's home to 300,000 uh, people and half of the city was underwater. There's a specific area in Kherson, which is an island, which was drowning, basically. We also have no idea even now how many people drowned on the other side of Dnipro River, where Russians are still stationed, because there's Alersky, there's uh, different villages, little cities. That are still under Russian occupation. Yes. And basically what's happening there that nobody counted the dead there. We saw some several videos of people of bodies flowing or people standing on rooftops, but we don't have access to those places and we have no idea how many people died. And obviously the water went away, but the ecology of the of the place is now in ruins, right? Because for example, southern Ukraine was where Ukraine had crop fields, it had everything basically, right? And it will take years and maybe generations to restore that. We know we had a meeting with the Dutch uh, trade minister. The Netherlands are really interested in restoring the Kachovka Dam. And what the minister told me is that even if they restore it after the war, and we don't know when the war is over, right? It will take years and years to bring the ecology and the whole situation in the region back to as it was prior. And maybe it's not even possible. Yeah, it's worth like taking a pause and, and remembering the different humanitarian responses to to this disaster because you had a flood where one side and the other is of the river is warring with each other. And yeah, on the Ukrainian side, we had this huge mobilization of resources, maybe even yeah. too much, like every volunteer and their dog wanted to go uh, to, to... At some point, volunteers actually said that like, we don't need any more help, we got it. But more or less it was it was orderly like everyone was was mobilized and moving despite the russians shelling the evacuation point i was just a couple of hundred meters away it was it was it was ridiculous but yeah on the occupied territory we we know that they basically did nothing in in many ways you know they were, i think there was news about them stopping people from evacuating if closing they didn't towns, have if they yeah. didn't have russian passports closing down towns and you had ukrainian soldiers and special forces in boats evacuating people from the Russian side or flying aid to people on their rooftops with drones. I mean, it's just in terms of historical precedent and just complete craziness, like not something we've ever seen before. And also on this topic is that we're now remembering how it went, but looking right now, it's one of the many really, really crazy events that happened during this year, right? Before the podcast, I remembered that, for example, Putin and Vova Bilova were on the wanted list of the International Criminal Court. And I had to remember, was it this year or last year or like 10 years ago? Because, because they commit so, so many war crimes. That and so many things happen is mm -hmm. that... He, you don't remember that it was actually like half a year ago. So speaking of Lovov Bilova and Putin and the ICC, of course, the Gahovka Dam explosion was a huge humanitarian disaster and uh, a terrible war crime. But that's not why Putin was, you know, issued an arrest warrant. So so what happened there? Can uh, you get into Yeah, that was, that was way prior. But basically, they're wanted for another war crime is the abduction of Ukrainian children. Right now, according to Ukraine, there's around 20,000 Ukrainian children that were abducted from the occupied regions. Russia's POW, Belarus, is also taking part, but there's confirmed around 2,000 Ukrainian children being abducted and taken to Belarus. And, and 
It's just important ki- to mention that nobody really knows the real numbers, right? Yeah, so these are 20,000 kids that the Ukrainian government was able to identify, right? It's, it's basically the number that the Ukrainian government is telling everyone. Yeah. Uh, it's Unfortunately, we can't prove that it's exactly 20,000. Much uh, Everybody says that it's probably higher, but we don't have proof, yeah? And so what's happening here is that the audacity of this is insane. And the way that this topic is underreported in the world is also insane. Because basically what's happening is that Russian forces are abducting Ukrainian children and forcing them to become Russian. They're, there's a whole system by which kids from occupied regions, especially orphans, are taken to Russia and then given to Russian families. Sometimes those kids have their names changed, their date of birth changed for Ukraine not to be able to identify those kids and return them. And newborns and infants who yes. are not even going to remember what happened. Yes. And what's happening now is as long as this war is ongoing, Kids that were abducted and they were like four years, five years, even 10 years, by the time the war ends, they're going to have a completely different mindset because of Russian propaganda, because how much resources Russia is putting into changing uh, the reality of those kids. Mm -hmm. To transition away from one of the most tragic parts of this war, the abduction of children, to something more of just like Russian domestic craziness. The mutiny of Yevgeny Prigozhin. Are we are we calling it mutiny, a failed coup, whatever you guys prefer? Let's, I like let's... much of justice, <laughs> and I like that it failed in Russia yeah. as always. Let's talk about that. Um, how how big of a deal was that? Do you think? Yeah, well, again, it goes back to this month of June, which was just insane because it started with counteroffensive, then Kakhovka you know some and then like events that we seem we thought would be impossible june was packed and then and then yeah one day we're doing this tactical medical training with the kiev independent and and suddenly we're looking at twitter and there are tanks heading to moscow and they're not ukrainian tanks (laughs) which which is important (laughs) um so again it was just another Surreal thing. I think. I think we would all agree that it was uh, disappointing in the end that it ended in in less than twenty four hours. I remember I almost finished my piece about it, and then he stopped. He turned around. But you know, I think for me, looking at Russia as a whole and how Russia has been over twenty twenty three, unfortunately, what we see is is a stable, pretty stable regime. It's always hard to see like what's really going on under the under the surface and and whether something could snap just like that. But it always is worth remembering that Putin has had 23 years to build the most secure, stable, power vertical uh, regime possible in Russia. It was kind of coup proof and protest proof, revolution proof. And yeah, in, in a way, Prigozhin showed the weakness of that, but still think he was a kind of exception. You know, he was he was just this strange dude who was just given too much, too many resources and too much power and the ability to prove himself on the battlefield with not just some random organ of the Russian security services, but with his own truly loyal, truly professional and effective private army. Joshua, do you think it had any effect long term? Like back in June, there were all of these hopeful, semi-joking, you know, memes about how, oh, this is going to be the thing that, you know, that highlights that Putin's regime can be destroyed. But I feel like by now, and we're talking about, you know, Putin obviously being reelected very soon. 
um, that's in quotation marks, um, and you know, him mobilizing even more people, potentially announcing full mobilization. It seems like Putin is doing pretty well. No, so. he's after the mutiny. He's definitely stronger than ever. With Prigozhin, it's basically dude throwing a party that nobody showed up because he 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 obviously wanted the Russian mid-level officials or generals to kind of support him. Everybody was too scared. And what happened is that in the short term, he showed Putin's weakness. And in the long run, Putin actually benefited from them because he saw out everybody who was opposing him in any way possible because Prigozhin wasn't a Russian liberal opposition guy. He was basically a guy who didn't like that Putin's war machine wasn't killing Ukrainians fast enough and effectively, right? I just want to add to that and make one point about Russia, which I think has been proven right throughout this war, Prigozhin being an exception. Whenever people, whether it's in newspapers or, or political analysts, Russia experts, so on, or just commentators, they talk about this or that factor putting pressure on Putin, him worrying about his, his opinion, rating domestic resentments, maybe the oligarchs are upset because they took their yachts, so on, the pressure of mobilization, so on, so on. But at the end of the day, there's one golden rule for me. Never expect the Russians to do anything, like to, to do anything to show real resistance. Again, Prigozhin, I take as a very, very rare exception because he was almost a perfect coup leader in the sense that he, he was you know, he had his own mind and, and he was, he had his own private army and his own ideals. The coup leader actually succeeds in throwing a coup. Yeah. That, that's kind of yeah, the, but the you, first rule of coups. Yeah, but you could see how, <laughs> how short, you could see how short he fell, like how far away he was from actually achieving anything. And But apart from him and apart from this huge Wagner private army, I mean, just don't expect Russians to do anything. There's a lot of talk of, uh, you know, additional mobilization in Ukraine and potential problems with that. So we were just at a press conference, kind of like a similar, you know, annual roundup press conference with uh, President Zelensky. What are, what are some of the latest news that we're hearing in terms of mobilization in the future? So Zelensky expressed the interest and the need of Ukraine's leadership to mobilize a lot more people. Uh, How many are we? We're are we talking, talking four or five hundred thousand uh, potentially. That's a lot, and of course, this is all happening parallel to discussions about demobilization, and you know, thinking about if if someone has been sent to fight or have has been has gone themselves, then they should eventually have some kind of expiry date on that, because that's not fair. If if you know. The war goes on for years and years and years and society divides into the military class and they're expected to fight forever. And the civilian class, just occasionally, some of them get mobilized to, to fill the ranks. But if you talk about demobilization, then you have to mobilize the same amount as all those people who've, who've been demobilized. And that's not even beginning to talk about, about the losses and replenishing them and repl replenishing and also all the these. skill set and of the people training. Who, training, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's no easy way out of this. And so it's good that these discussions are happening and, and eventually legislation will be made and hopefully, you know, it, what you just hope for is that this is all done in, in a decently just way, because I think 
here in Kiev, where we're safe in Europe, in Lviv, whatever, uh, the thing that we should be the most grateful for is are these soldiers, the ones in the trenches the whole time. And it's the job of, of the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian society to, to do right by them. I think I want to add here is that one point that you mentioned is that kind of Ukrainian society is dividing in a sense. There is a military class and there is a civilian class. The full-scale war is going on for almost two years now. And every month we see the division being like more and more, right? We we see that among civilians, there is... Uh, Basically, politics is back in Ukraine, right? One of the biggest uh, scandals was, does Zelensky and Zaluzhny actually hate each other? And the problem here is that for soldiers on the front line who are basically saving everyone else and who are protecting the country and trying to survive, looking back at what's happening in Kiev or Lviv or whatever, it must be really kind of demoralizing or depressing, right? Because if the war continues for one, two, three, five more years, then this divide will be just like increasing. We also have around, well, six million people left, four million people stayed abroad. So we have four million people who left the country in 2022 and also have a kind of distorted version of what's happening in the country, right? So all these kind of problems are taking time bombs and obviously the government knows about it. And during the press conference, Zelensky mentioned that there needs to be a rotation, there needs to be more people added to the military, but it's, it's something that's really, really hard to solve. And unfortunately, that's something that we all have to keep an eye for 2024. Well, let's talk about the EU, because the progress in terms of Ukraine's EU accession, I think, uh, has actually been quite important this year. So Ukraine has passed a whole list of various reforms. We can, we can have discussions about, you know, how actually solid and effective in practice those reforms are, but at least on paper, we're now closer to the EU than we have ever been. According to the European Commission, we completed four out of the seven recommendations. We had to complete seven. We did four. They said, well, that's fine. What happened is that finally Europe is thinking about Ukraine as being part of Europe as, okay, maybe Ukraine needs to, I don't know, fix some laws to implement some reforms. But talking to, we had an interview with Charles Michel, we, we had talks with different European officials. Finally, they're thinking about Ukraine as being part of the European community. This wasn't the case before 2022, right? So even if Ukraine is lagging in, in some parts, European officials will still try to bring Ukraine closer, right? Well, ex except one dude um, from Hungary, but... He goes to get coffees at very convenient times. Yeah, so but... We'll work with him. Yeah, but what happened is... So the pol political decision was, was made. Ukraine kind of was allowed to start accession talks. They won't start anytime soon because till March, you has to, Ukraine has to complete the final recommendations, the European Union has to assess them and then vote for opening accession chapters. There's 35. Each chapter is like a thousand different laws and documents and everything. And that's for like 10 years now. Horatia, the last uh, country that joined the European Union, it took them 10 years to complete the 33 out of 35 chapters. So it's a long ride. But we see that the political decision is made, so it's, it's really good for Ukraine that Ukraine is actually part of Europe, but 
when it comes to actual support to finances, to everything, Orban didn't go get coffee when the 50 billion aid package was made, right? Came back uh, he, yeah, he came back. And, and here we see that despite all the talk, unfortunately, going forward, it's going to be hard to main, maintain the actual support, right? There were talks about in different countries that some European countries are cutting support for Ukrainian refugees. There's problems with passing military aid. There's problems in the European Union to ramp up uh, production. For example, uh, Europe promised a million shells to March, right, 2024, like in a year to produce a million shells, shells, they produced around 400,000. So like way below the promised quantity. And, and, and here we see that Europe is still really slow. It's not ready to support Ukraine without the United States. And also that some public opinion in some countries is changing, not all of them, obviously, but in some countries, and because the European Union is such a large bureaucracy, this will kind of endanger some support that Ukraine can get. Obviously, most countries and most large countries are still supportive of Ukraine and they will be supportive of Ukraine. And here I want to do actually a shout out to Germany, which is bashed on every corner that it's not doing enough. But Germany is the second largest supporter of Ukraine in terms of military, financial aid and everything, basically. They've changed their attitude a lot since the beginning. Yeah, and, and Scholz was the one who kicked Orban out of the room, apparently. So, uh, according sources of the political. Yeah, we see that there's going to be still a lot of problems, but at least the first step, and the political step was made. So it looks like 2024 is going to be hugely important for Ukraine, not only militarily speaking, because we, we have now moved to this defensive new phase of the war. That's uh, also going to be really costly and difficult, but also politically speaking, you know, aid is on the line in, in many places, especially in the U.S. Again, at the press conference, Zelensky said that, you know, it's going to be a big problem if Trump is elected, for example. So wh what are you guys predicting as, as much as we can predict here? Uh, what are you looking forward to in 2024? On the battlefield, I think the, the dynamic on the battlefield, I always think there are three big categories of, of factors that affect what happens on the battlefield, like whether Ukraine is more successful or Russia is more successful, depends on these three, three things. The first one is obviously Western aid, whether that funding is passed, whether Ukraine gets a proper flow of ammunition. B is the internal Ukrainian competence of the political and military leadership. And, and C is how the Russians fight. Of course, you can't forget the other side. So with A, like a lot depends on whether military funding for Ukraine and, and those deliveries, especially of ammunition, can be passed by Congress. And I think we all hope that, hope that they will, that they'll come to a deal in January because they all realize how critical this is for, for U.S. interests for generally maintaining the, the rules-based world order. But obviously, if it's passed or if it's not passed, that's already two very different trajectories of how the war will go, one positive and one negative. But beyond that, the other factor is how Ukraine defends themselves. So, so that depends on how they fortify. That depends on how well they use their, the forces that they're available. You know, if they can improve the, the coordination of forces, if they can win the drone war is super important. 
with the yeah. overhaul of the defense ministry about which we yeah. the entire episode if, if that actually works and you know yeah. it's fruitful so 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 with drones i mean again that's what zaluzhny talked about that you need a technology technological edge i guess to to get the upper hand in this fight and it's a really difficult one because Ukraine is normally the one who innovates first and comes up with with really cool new drone ideas first, but then Russia sees it, Russia copies it, and Russia Does supplies it. Does it much larger scale? Yeah, Russia supplies it with billions of dollars of of state money, whereas Ukraine is not really doing that, and a lot of the burden still falls on grassroots volunteers and, and innovators. So that's a big thing to watch. And then, of course, yeah, what Russia does, how they, they choose to attack, whether it's insane human wave attacks or huge wave drone attacks or, or something else. You know, we've seen the Russians fight in a really dumb way throughout this war and in a really, in a fairly smart way, you know, playing to their advantages sometimes. So, yeah, at the end of the day, the most important thing is for Ukraine to fight effectively in defense. That's my opinion. So for them to save the lives of their people, of their soldiers, and of course their expensive Western equipment, and to deal maximum attrition, maximum casualties to the Russians. And that can be done better actually when the Russians are attacking. So in many ways, you know, there's a lot of bleakness, but one little, I think, silver lining to that is that the fact that we can expect Ukraine to be on the defensive is going to be difficult, but it's also potentially an opportunity because that's one way where militarily the pressure can be put back on Russia. We talked about this last week where they're just losing more and more men. They can't push through Ukrainian defenses and they're starting to think, well, maybe we should we should stop we should dial down our ambitions and and we this whole imperial dream of taking all of ukraine might not be possible we'll see well on the political side um it's it's hard to predict anything obviously but i think and all the signals that we received that both the eu and the states will pass eventually the the aid packages and probably Ukraine will get the funding and the military aid that it was promised for 2024. But in 2024, Ukraine will actually have to prepare for 2025. It's weird to look that far ahead. But in 2025, we can unfortunately see a completely different ball game in terms of who's president in the States, who's leading the European Parliament, and so on, right? There's a lot of really crucial elections. And Ukraine has to right now secure the funding for 2024 and make sure that Europe and the states are willing to support Ukraine for years because this war is looking like a really, really long conflict. And here we see that obviously what's happening on the battlefield is really crucial because if Ukraine can show some kind of result that Ukraine is successfully using the funds, Ukraine is successfully using the military hardware, then it will be easier to persuade other countries and politicians to continue this support, right? And this is the problem here that Ukrainian officials are now working to cure a plan for years to come. And, and this is something that we're not talking aloud, but that the change in perception is crucial. It, before the corner offensive, everybody thought that 
okay, maybe it's not going to end this year, but in 2024, for sure it will end. Budanov went and said Russia has resources to fight till the end of 2024, early 2025. Everything's fine. He said Crimea is going to be liberated. Crimea is going to be liberated. Everybody was preparing for this war to end within a year, maybe two. Now everybody understands that this is a really long war. When we were, again, speaking with the Dutch trade minister, for example, their plan is to build up Ukraine's air force in the next four years, right? And they're talking about the support they can do in the next four years. That's the plan. We, we have several countries around 10 that now have budget plans for three, four years to support Ukraine. And we need, obviously, not only the Dutch or I don't know, Latvia to do that, but we need the European Union and especially the United States to commit supporting Ukraine for years now. And unfortunately, Ukraine right now is becoming a bargaining chip in U.S. domestic politics. And we had an interview with uh, Dmitry Kuleba, the foreign minister of Ukraine, who said it was actually a good thing that they're still talking about Ukraine because that way Ukraine is always on the table here. But in reality, for example, right now, the Republican Party in the United States is, is blocking aid to Ukraine, not because they don't support Ukraine, but because they want concessions from the Democrats and a completely different topic, the border, right? And if this continues to happen in the US and then in Europe, again, dealing with migrants or economy issues or gas prices or whatever, then we're going to be in really, really big trouble because then Ukraine for them will turn into a spectacle where they support the winners or support Ukraine only if something is happening here and they don't if it's a long trench warfare. And for us, it's going to cost a lot of our lives and it is continuously costing, um, you know, thousands of dead, unfortunately, or best people. You mentioned that there will be a lot of really important elections. One of those could be in Ukraine. We still don't know whether Ukraine is going to be holding elections. I see you guys are no, shaking no. your heads. We've voiced an opinion and, you know, an, an informed one on this podcast many times and in the Cuban Independent articles that, you know, us as journalists and also various analysts just don't think it's a good idea for a whole variety of reasons. I think it's worth saying to those who are still hesitant uh, on to, you know, why we think that. Because nothing is going to change if we hold elections, am I right? Like, the Zelensky is going to win a second term if we hold elections. So there's no talk right now about Zelensky, you know, lacking political legitimacy or uh, not really being the president of Ukraine fairly or anything like that. Like in the Ukrainian society, that's not an issue. And if we were to hold elections, he is going to win. There is no real opposition. So I think it's just important to get that out there because I think some people are still pressing for us to spend millions of dollars in wartime I, I, I think on this process. The, the main people who are interested in holding elections in 2024 is people in the president's office and uh, in the Ukrainian president's office. And that's one thing worth mentioning is that domestic politics is back. And we're pretty sure that they're not going to hold elections in 2024, but they're still looking in the long run. There was this poll conducted that wasn't meant Republic Eye, but it was still leaked, where Zelensky and Zaluzhny are the two most popular people if they run. Uh, and, Which is very logical. And, yeah, yeah, and that uh, there's actually little separating them in the second round if they have a runoff. And so there's the scandal between Zelensky and Zaluzhny. There's also a lot of 
investigations about officials and judges who are using basically the war to enrich themselves. Unfortunately, we see that people in high cabinets are also now thinking about their political capitals, their their political ambitions, their what's going to happen if elections are going to be held in Ukraine or what's going to happen if Ukraine wins or loses in a sense that's not militarily oriented, right? And here we see that this is also a major issue. And probably in 2024, if the front line is not going to change substantially either way, then more and more people will be invested in political infighting in the country instead of supporting Ukraine's fences. Yeah, I would add here that I think it's no coincidence that the topic of elections was really entertained and voiced you know, to Zelensky, by Zelensky, by the Ukrainian society during the summertime where, again, as I said, everything seemed more or less slowly stabilizing and, and nice and, and, Going up and in control. But now, you know, when we had this, this big paradigm shift in autumn, that is the same time that Zelensky publicly shut down this discussion. And I think we all, we all shook our head. We all believed that it would be, it would be really stupid to, to further entertain this and to further these plans with the, the war going on at the moment in the way that it is. And, and here I would say that whenever you're discussing any of, any of this stuff, the most important thing, we're talking about the survival of independent Ukraine and, and potentially the victory in the future, most important thing is what happens on the battlefield. Everything that happens in Kiev, in the Ukrainian rear, in the economy, in Brussels and Washington, all of that is going to affect the battlefield in some way or another. And holding elections, allowing Ukrainian society to publicly encouraging them because you have to have, you know, candidates running for election, encouraging them to turn on themselves and 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 tear themselves apart is is the absolute last thing Ukraine needs when it's it's Russia who's now potentially going to be advancing on the battlefield. So I think if yeah, for now, 2024 it won't happen. And in turn, in the other you know, vice versa, it's it's the battlefield that dictates whether whether these discussions could come back again in the future. Well on that note we're going to be wrapping up of course we have no other choice but to hope for the absolute best and for victory of ukraine in the least costly i'd say manner possible our podcast is going on a little christmas break just like all of us we're going to be back in uh, early we're not going in the christmas break <laughs> <laughs> the whole war is not stopping, so you guys might end up writing um, a lot, a lot more. And uh, the podcast is going to be back in early January. Talk with you about all the things that have happened in the meantime. Thank you for being here, and thank you to the thousands of you who are watching us and listening us. It's been a great ride over these past however many months we've been doing this. We've had a lot of fun. Thanks. Thank you, and Merry Christmas, and have Merry a happy Christmas. New Year. Slavo Ukraini as well. Hrvom Slavo.